Hello, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of One Vision. Today, we're very honored to have not just one, but two amazing guests with us on the show today. Dr. Chai Wu Lee, research scientist at the MIT Age Lab, and Dr. Julie Miller, lecturer at the Northwestern University, Boston University, and research scientist at MIT Age Lab. Welcome to our show, Julie and Chai Wu. Thank you. And super honored. Um, Brad, I think this is the first time we ever had um, two ladies on our show with us and with so much like knowledge and background and and everything else. I almost feel a little intimidated. Yes, we've had doctors on the show. We've had we've had Lita Glyptus on the show, but uh, I don't think we've ever had two, two. Um, amazing doctors on the show. No. Yes. Yes, I know. All right, so this is, I think, the time I should behave myself. Um, before we start, um, uh, Chawu and, and Julie, um, can you both share with our audience a little bit about HLAP and the work that you two do there? Yeah, I guess I will start, and Julie, you can add anything that I miss. Um, so the HLAP started about 20 years ago, um, and back then we were primarily working on transportation-related research, so thinking about um, how transportation services may evolve with new technologies, how older drivers may get around um, with assistance from those new technologies. Um, but since then, we've really expanded into different research areas, different aspects of people's lives that are affected by the aging of the society, as well as advances in technology. So right now we're working in four main research areas. So transportation is still a big part that we're working on, um, including how communities and housing are designed. Um, we're also right now working a lot in caregiving and well-being and thinking about how families provide care to a loved one and how new services and new technologies might affect their experiences. Um, we're also right now working in home services and logistics. So thinking about the home as a place where people access services, use technologies, provide care, and thinking about the logistics of using those technologies and services. Um, we also more generally work um, in research related to retirement planning and future planning, thinking about not necessarily developing any retirement products, but thinking about how people perceive the future, how people plan for the future, and how to drive meaningful behavior change. Um, and across these areas, we think about innovations in new technologies and services not necessarily to develop a new device or a gadget, but really with the focus on understanding the experiences of consumers and users across generations. And I myself work across all four areas of our research, um, as many of our researchers do, including Julie. Um, but um, I focus more on understanding how people of various ages and characteristics perceive and accept new technologies. Adding on to what Chaiwu has said, Something that is so unique about the Age Lab, well, there are, there are many things, but uh, one of the things that's so unique about the Age Lab is that we are a very multidisciplinary group, and that's very intentional. Uh, our founder, Dr. Joe Coughlin, his background is in political science, and as Chaibu has talked about, his a lot of his background is is actually in transportation, and um, and so Joe has really made it so that at the Age Lab. We have people whose work has been in psychology, poli-sci, engineering, public health. My background, for instance, is in gerontological social work. The list goes on. And, and that is by design so that we can think about aging from new perspectives, 
using multiple lenses and intersecting and overlapping lenses to hopefully think about aging in new and different ways. Something else that's really exciting about the Age Lab that that is unique to us, I feel, is that despite our name, the Age Lab, we don't only study older adults. People often hear MIT Age Lab and think, oh, you work with people over the age of insert whatever number here. But in fact, at the Age Lab, we tend to look at people all across the life course because we know that it's experiences earlier in life that then inform experiences, attitudes, behaviors later in life, and so on and so forth. So these are just a couple of ways that that being at the Age Lab, we're, we're really able to look at, at quote unquote aging experiences, hopefully in new ways. So Julie, something really interesting that you just mentioned about studying multiple age across the, the the course of life, if you will, for lack of better terms, it reminds me of something that a colleague of mine in ERP used to say, she said, we all start getting older the minute we are born. So when we think about aging, when we think about getting older, it's not like automatically there's a magic button that happens at age 50, you just get old. We're all getting older if you think about it. Babies, they're born and then they learn how to walk. That's part of getting older, right? And then them turning into teenagers, going through different courses of life, experiencing different things, um, trying new technology, doing new ways, thinking about new ways of working. That's also part of life experiences, part of aging. And, and what I really love about what you two just said is that hopefully it helps bring that concept out to the larger society so that we can have a different perception of aging. It doesn't have to be negative, right? It's about taking in different experiencing, trying different ways of thinking about things. And, and I, just, I just love that. Thank you so much for sharing that. One of the things that it made me think about um, when we, we talk about aging is the difference in culture and the difference in the way that technology adoption and solutions that are geared to helping people as they age um, is really, really different, especially between East and West. A couple of years back, I was in Tokyo um, looking at technology and innovation, especially for um, people as they age. And, you know, what had the opportunity to write an article for International Banker where I sort of contrasted the two sides of what Japan has um, done for their population. And I'm wondering, you know, Chaiwu, are you looking at that in terms of the way that, you know, these solutions are different between cultures and between East and West? Yeah, so we definitely think about differences between countries and cultures when it comes to distribution and use of technologies. I don't think we right now have a study that's dedicated to doing cultural comparisons, but that's something that we continue seeing across our research. So I feel like um, what I've learned from my research is that there are many factors that affect how people interact with and accept new technologies. And um, I see two major ways in which people in different countries approach uh, may approach new technologies differently. Um, and one is definitely cultural norms and beliefs um, about how a product or service gets developed, used. Um, for example, in some interviews I did with designers and developers, um, of new technologies, especially on robotics. Um, what I saw was that um, when it comes to robots and other 
tools that are used for older adults and families, um, some Asian cultures and some European cultures really approach it differently. So, for example, I see a lot of um, solutions developed out of Japan um, mostly um, are more geared towards socialization and social engagement and companionship, whereas when robots are developed from some European countries, they're more focused around assisting with functional needs and physical needs. And sometimes, um, actually, we have a, a therapeutic robot called Paro in the lab that was developed by someone who was affiliated with the lab before. Um, and he's a Japanese researcher. Um, and he's exactly said that um, in Japan, when Paro gets sold, it gets sold as a companion robot and it gets sold as a pet. Um, whereas when it's used in European countries, you have to be licensed to use it and it's used as a therapeutic tool. So definitely some differences in terms of how different cultures approach technologies. Another factor that I see is that different countries likely have some different, different distribution channels too, um, as well as the policies um, related to the distribution and use of these technologies among older adults and families. And that's especially true because not always, but in many cases, the technologies that we look at fall under the category of health management tools. Um, and in that case, it really gets affected by healthcare policies and insurance. And it's not just the technology that we're looking at in those cases. That is so interesting. It reminded me of when I was growing up in Hong Kong. I was so used to seeing cartoons of robots and it's always like a helpful little robot. My favorite one was Doraemon and uh, it, it's, it's a robotic cat that came back from the future and helping humans out. It has a, he has a, um, a little magic pockets that he would reach in and get tools. And, you know, he keeps a little boy company and, you know, he just does a lot of good for his friends. And then, Fast forward, I moved to the US when I was 18. And all I see with robots is destruction, some some giant robot coming from outer space and destroy the earth. And then someone comes in and, and save the world. It, 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 it just it's very, very different in terms of even how little kids perceive robots. Um, so I, I like that cultural aspect that you shared, which I would think is so much. Let's switch gear a little bit, um, Julie. I don't think there is one day that I can go by lately that I don't hear someone talking about student loans. Is student loans forgiveness? How much we owe student loans? What should we do next year, et cetera, et cetera. Now, you have completed your dissertation on the effects of student loan debt for millennials, Gen Xers, baby boomers, and, and beyond. Because Let's face it, this is a societal challenge, not just one of a particular generation. How big is that problem um, that you were studying? And can you share with us some of the findings from that research? Definitely. So I would start off by saying that when I began my dissertation research, I was really focused on the question of, of how can we forecast the aging future of millennials in particular? That's where I started. And with that, I too started looking around and seeing student loans, student loans, student loans are, are part of so many millennials vocabularies. What does that mean for how younger people are planning for the future and how younger people are making decisions? So looking around and learning, you know, right now, anyway, about 44 million people in the United States have student loans, either for themselves or someone else. 
And then also learning, actually, while the 65 plus population right now may be the age group with the lowest total amount of student loans in the U.S., it's actually the fastest growing group of people with student loans in the United States. And so learning just that and learning that, for instance, the number of people age 65 and older who have defaulted on their student loans because of those defaults, that there had actually been a 500% increase in the number of people age 65 and older who had had their social security payments garnished because of defaulted student loans over a 10-year period. Learning that made me realize, wow, student loans are not just an issue for younger people. They're an issue for people of all ages. And they're not just an issue now, but they're an issue for the future both within generations and across generations. So what we did at the Age Lab, using our perspective of, again, not just not aging as just a insert number here plus experience, but as really a life course experience, we started conducting a research project. And like many of our projects at the Age Lab, this was a mixed method study where we were able to use multiple approaches to research to understand both breadth and depth of the issue. And so for us, we started off actually with a number of focus groups, about 100 participants in total, where we learned for borrowers of different ages, between the ages of 18 and 75, in fact, what does it mean to have the student loans that you have now? What does it mean for your family relationships? What does it mean for your romantic relationships? What does it mean for how you save money, for how you spend money? And, and this is one of these largely unexplored questions, what do your student loans mean for how you think about retirement for the big r word what do student loans mean for how you think about caregiving if that is something that you are currently doing or maybe doing in the future questions like these and so some of our takeaways in addition to these focus groups we also then conducted a national survey with over 1800 people across the united states with loans for themselves or for someone else or both some of our major takeaways were that for about 84% of people who took that national survey, the student loans that they carried had been negatively impacting the amount that they were able to save for retirement. We learned that over three quarters of people expected to increase their retirement savings after paying off their student loans, meaning the loans had been acting as, as a barrier for them to really maximize the amount that they save for retirement. Like I mentioned, we were also really interested in the intersection of loans and family relationships, because we know at the Age Lab, people do not behave in vacuums. People do not come up with, with their opinions and their attitudes in vacuums. We really need to look at family systems. We need to look at the environment in which people live to figure out what's going on. And so we learned that about 40% of people in our sample said that they never spoke about the student loans that they had with their family. You could say, okay, so what? We would say, huh, does that actually act in some ways the way money acts more generally within families? If we're talking about estate planning, if we're talking about end of life decisions, if we're talking about all kinds of other, uh, all kinds of other issues that happen in families um, that, that are often felt as taboo. And then finally, I would say we learned, and this really echoes previous research, that often compared with men, 
women, particularly older women who were repaying loans for a child, let's say, or children, were often making sacrifices to their own financial security in order to really lift the futures of their children. So, you know, with all of this said, we know that in this case, student loans and the intersection of family and longevity planning, these are really complex issues uh, that will take multiple sectors working together to solve and not just one. Yeah, when when you think about <clears throat> financial services and you know our financial lives, they're more and more complex. And I think in this country, we make them more than they need to be. You know, we're the only country that has to deal with things like not being able to afford student loans or not be able to afford um, payments for medical services and healthcare coverage as we age. And you know, just yesterday, the New York Times had a big section on sort of big ideas for the next decade and beyond, and. You know, there was a lot of conversation during the election about universal basic income and different ways that we could help people financially in this country. And, and one of the ideas was every single person born would be given, I think it was like $6,400 and put into a trust that would be growing in the market. And that would give every single person a million dollars at the age 65. And you think, oh, wow, that's, that's so much money. Uh, because the average person retires with, like, I think, $130,000, which is really, really skewed toward you know, sort of the top 10% as it is. But when you think about that and you think about, you know, the the amount of money that was just given away to very large corporates, this would actually be, you know, about $60 billion a year is what it would cost the government. And that's such a small drop in a bucket. So, you know, beyond um, aging, I think a policy change would, would really make our lives much, much different. Let's talk about how technology is changing our financial lives though. What role can AI play in helping us secure a more stable financial future? Who wants to take on that? Yeah, so I'm actually gonna let our data speak to this since because right now we're doing a study on a related topic. Um, this study, which is funded by Bank of America, um, we're looking at the impacts of AI implementations on many aspects of our lives, our longer lives especially. Um, and one of the topics that we're looking at is how people approach and manage finances. So in this study, we asked a group of experts and consumers regarding their confidence in various AI applications, their expectations regarding consumer adoption, and their thoughts about benefits and risks. Um, and when we asked people about financial applications of AI, the experts who answered our questions generally said that they're pretty confident in AI's ability to analyze spending habits, make recommendations, um, perform small customer service tasks, and help manage retirement savings. Um, we also saw that um, experts were talking about how they have confidence in AI to perform larger customer service tasks, um, evaluate credit worthiness of individuals, and even replace the human financial advisors. Um, and when we talked about potential effect, uh, potential effects of um, effects that AI might have in how people access finances, um, experts also indicated that they believe AI applications will make financial services generally and more specifically saving for retirement and meeting financial goals more accessible to a wider group of people. Um, so including those who maybe right now don't have a financial advisor to help them manage finances or have um, easy access to um, different financial services that might help them. 
Um, experts that we talked to also said that AI will generally help people accumulate wealth and achieve financial stability more easily than right now. So there are various ways in which AI may, able, may be able to support individuals' financial management and future planning. But what we also are seeing is that experts and consumers don't always fully agree on these. Um, so experts generally have a higher confidence in AI's possibilities and promises. And part of that is because they know more about the um, the capabilities of AI. They know more about what it can do and cannot do. Um, while customers were um, consumers that we talked to were a little more hesitant when it comes to use of AI and applying AI in different aspects of their lives. So even as AI applications mature in the financial management and services world, we might still see a little bit of delay in adoption, I think. I would also add, if I may, that where the potential of AI in, in building financial capabilities of people is really exciting is if we acknowledge the fact that it's only about 15% of people in the United States who have a financial advisor, who has someone who works with them to, to make their money work for them. And if we think about how to move toward a more equitable society and, and again, how to build financial capacity and capability for all people, certainly in light of some very ongoing uh, inequalities that we have in the United States around access to wealth. We know, you know, again, that, that most people actually have, have little to no retirement savings. And with that comes often low confidence in one's ability to retire. And so if we think about some of the opportunities with how artificial intelligence can ideally level the playing field, we, you know, we can think about certainly ways that AI uh, already is and can continue to do things like portfolio management and, um, you know, and, and tracking expenses and making suggestions about how to save money uh, and, and how to invest, of course. But where I get really excited um, is, is, in a, is in a more grim statistic, and that is that we know in the United States, it's actually about $36.5 billion in losses uh, that, that the nation experiences due to financial fraud with, within the older community in the United States. We know that you know financial fraud and, and scams and financial exploita exploitation of older adults in the US is a really growing issue. How can artificial intelligence be leveraged for good in that way? Especially when we point out the fact that as we all know, financial management and financial services is not just about the dollars and cents. It's about often very sticky and emotionally complex issues, certainly one uh, like dealing with financial abuse and, and some of its corollaries. So how can AI be used to really help big issues like these? Yeah, I also want to add another thought, um, maybe two more thoughts just briefly. Um, one that I think about also is how there's generational differences in how people save for retirement, plan for their future. Um, because we see from our research that younger adults tend to have um, less certainty about their financial future and their financial well-being as retirees in the future. But when we ask them about new technologies, acceptance of AI, they indicate being more open to using those. So um, AI and related solutions might help to kind of close that gap. 
Um, and another thing that I think about is there are even even among people who have financial advisors, there are certain things that they don't always talk to their financial advisors about, even though it's definitely affecting their finances for something like caregiving, something like managing uh, a loved one's health or a, a, man, a loved one's well-being. So we see that caregiving has a lot of impacts on the caregiver's finances and often um, in many cases, but it's not necessarily something that they talk to their financial advisors about. But if there's a, an, some kind of AI application playing there to uncover underlying patterns about how the people are spending their money um, and find out things that people don't necessarily tell or people don't necessarily think as a topic to necessarily bring up. Um, it might help to um, find patterns that go unnoticed, um, but still might be important to look at. That is such an interesting um, thought because I remember, I wanted to say maybe two, three years ago now, I read a report that talked about financial caregiving and how over 70% of people would do things for for their parents or for their grandparents and loved ones financially and didn't even plan for it, right? So it, we all know that at some point in life, we will probably get to a point where we will need to help someone in our family. That's a given. But yet, so many of us don't plan for it. So Chai, with your point, if there's something that technology can help us, you know, plan for it, put money aside, and figure out how we can best optimize what we need to do. I think that that would be that would be amazing. And it goes back to one of the startups that um, we we know very well, Peffin. They're an AI startup um, based in New York, and one of the things that they do, which we like a lot, is being able to take into account your financial obligations across generations. So, for example, people like Brad and I, we're sandwich generation. We have kids that will eventually go to college in about like what 10 years time i don't even want to think about it um and then we also have extended families that we need to take care of and our own retirement that we need to think about so how do we juggle between all of these responsibilities what needs to happen when and how and how do we get there it becomes so complex to all of your points this is where we we can use some help right and more than a human advisor is perhaps giving the human advisor some technology to help him or her help us um and another thing about financial exploitation too um i'm sure you guys know um liz and team from eversafe they have done a lot of work using ai in helping older adults combat financial exploitation because that is the one area that impacts them the most they have the most assets that's where the scammer is going to target them and and hopefully you know we'll get more financial institution being interested in this and being able to do something for that demographic because this is so important it's not just about losing money it's also about dignity it also impacts their mental health and it's just devastating to know that they'll get to a point and then they lose all of their savings um so more more needs to be done on that um Going back to, to caregiving for a moment um, that you both talked about, with over 40-some million unpaid caregivers or family caregivers um, that, that we have, um, apart from finances and money and, and all of that, with so many generations living alongside each other, where can technology help? And more interestingly, what can we learn from other countries, from like a cultural aspect and, and for how 
we live together. Julie, earlier you talked about family, right? And 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 Chawu, you know, you brought in your experience from overseas. So how does that all work together in how we take care of each other? Yeah, so caregiving is a major topic that we're looking at like right now from from many different angles and technology is one of them. So we right now have a panel of family caregivers that we're surveying regularly called the CareHive CareHive panel. Um, right now we have about 1200 um, family caregivers who are joined into the panel and they answer surveys periodically to tell us about the, the in-depth details about how they provide care, what their unmet needs are, what they're doing to make their experiences more, um, more e easier, better, um, and um, more uh, effective. So one of the topics that we explore is technology and how they use different products, systems, services to support the care that they provide. Um, so actually recently we asked them about all kinds of different technologies, different products and services, if they use them to support care um, and what kinds of effects they're seeing, what they're using them for, um, and if they like them or not, if they're satisfied or not. Um, and we also, in parallel, asked um, if they're using the same technologies outside of caregiving as well. So a, a few takeaways from what we learned from that particular survey is that current use of technology to support care um, is still limited. Um, so when we ask about all kinds of different technologies, a lot of caregivers said that they're using those for themselves generally. But when it comes to caregiving, um, not everyone was necessarily using all of those for caregiving. Um, and in past studies that we um, did on caregiving too, we saw that the reason is not that they don't want to or don't see um, the effect, but just because they never thought about it, they just never thought about using something to support the care um, to make their job easier. Um, but they were generally interested in using technologies once we brought up the topic and open to the possibility. And when when we, we talk about technologies for caregiving, um, we're really talking about a, a whole suite of different things. So thinking about technologies that are specifically developed for caregiving support. Um, so things like managing health, managing medications, but also thinking about just general purpose technologies like a smartphone, like a laptop or tablet that you can run apps on, um, scheduling apps, um, calendar tools, messaging um, platforms, social media. So all kinds of things that you can use to support the communication, support the management of different activities, and also thinking about new internet-based services for delivering groceries, um, getting on-demand entertainment for a loved one, um, ride sharing to support transportation, um, online food delivery, meal kit delivery, housework service, everything. So we asked about a whole um, group of different technologies and saw that the general purpose technologies, so things like the smartphone and the tablets and laptops were more popularly used. But when we asked about home technologies and health technologies, so things like health metric tracker, um, smart entertainment system, home security systems, smart energy systems, fitness management tools, smart home appliances, some of which are traditionally more associated with caregiving and the things that people do to help one another. Um, these, this was actually um, the group where we saw the least 
um, acceptance or least utilization um, in terms of caregiving support. Um, so that's still a gap that we see um, that we might need to close. Um, and one of the things that we can do, I think, is to just let people know that these tools are out there. Because when we ask about these tools, a lot of caregivers say, that sounds like a great idea, but I've never heard of it. Um, I've never seen it. I've never thought about the possibility. So awareness is a big thing that um, we're trying to close the gap on. Um, because we see from our surveys and our research, our conversations with caregivers is that once you overcome that gap, um, that adoption gap and the utilization gap, once they start using something to support care, they are really satisfied. So um, for all of the technologies that we asked about, um, when caregivers were using them to support care, they were generally satisfied. They found them useful. They found them easy to use. They found them easy to integrate into their care. Um, and they were using them for not just a single task for a single reason, but really across different tasks and different reasons. So once you start using something, you can really use it to support different things that you do to provide care. And people are also um, seeing and reporting positive outcomes from using different technologies and services. So there are some benefits and promises that we see from different technologies. Um, and the, if we, we see um, these benefits um, differently across different um, services and solutions, but we also saw that some caregivers were expressing concerns around mainly around costs of using these technologies. And that is because for many of these technologies, you don't see the effects right away, um, but there's usually an upfront cost associated or um, as you get services, you will have to pay these every time. Um, so there's some benefit cost um, analysis that caregivers might be doing. Um, and because you don't always see the immediate benefits, um, that might be one factor that's limiting acceptance and utilization. Chai Wu, may I ask you a question? Sure. I've I've had the great fortune of working with Chai Wu for about eight years, and anytime I get to ask about her expertise in tech and aging and all things related to aging. I like to seize the moment. <laughs> so Chaiwu, with the world that we're living in right now, with so much happening online, given what you've just described about, you know, how, how some caregivers feel about technology, I'm thinking about some of the research that we and that you've done at the Age Lab over time about trust and concerns that people have about sharing their data, about, about engaging with technology in different ways, especially if there's any kind of surveillance or monitoring involved. Do you feel like with the world that we're living in now with everything happening online, or so it feels, that maybe caregivers thresholds for, for what they will trust and how much they care if they trust something or not, just to use the technology because they need it? Is that changing, you think? Um, yeah, there's a few things that I can speak to regarding trust. Um, so when it comes to caregiving, trust is, and trust, trust has many different definitions. There are many different aspects of trust. So you can approach it from kind of the privacy and security angle. And that really becomes essential when it's for um, caregiving, for management of health and well-being of the loved one, because a lot of the data that gets in is very personal and very sensitive. Um, so there might be a heightened sense of tr um, 
trust um, and the trust barrier um, regarding privacy and security of the data, um, but also trust in terms of kind of like interpersonal um, interactions too, because a lot of caregiving um, and related tasks are very personal and sometimes very intimate. So when we talk about different activities of caregiving, some of the more um, hands-on and more high-touch activities are some things that caregivers find the most challenging and most difficult. But those are also where caregivers will not, um, will be less likely to use a technology or a service to support their job. So even though they're the most difficult, they will still do it themselves um, because of um, the personal touch. Um, so there, there are different things that we see there. Um, so that's, um, we all, we're also right now doing uh, another study that specifically looks at frontier technologies and their impacts on caregiving. Um, and in that study too, we see that um, the more personal and basic tasks of caregiving might be where we see less effects of technology impacts and utilization in the future. I think that we just found another co-host and Julie for One Vision. So thanks for asking that question. Um, you know, let's let's wrap with this. We're we're all getting older. That's that's not a new phenomenon. You know, society um, continues to age globally, and you know, through Japan and other examples, um, we as humanity are getting older. And yet, ageism is. Uh, we need people to rethink longevity uh, from our workplaces, from products and financial planning, and the way that we think about, you know, how we age and how successfully we age. Um, we have challenges over the last decade and more of you know venture capital going into startups that are addressing some of these problems, and yet you know some people are finding out that we're aging all of a sudden. So now you have twenty and thirty something year olds um, starting to work on things finally, and yet our leaders in many cases are in their seventies and eighties and beyond, uh, but they're successful and they're financially secure. So how do we make longevity and aging? sexy again how do we get back into that what do you think yeah i think one important thing to think about and this is something that we emphasize throughout our research is to demedicalize aging um and oftentimes when we search for new technologies for older adults new services they're really centered around medicine they're really centered around um, health management clinical care um, but being old is, and being old comes with um, certain declines in physical and cognitive abilities most, in most cases, but being old itself is not a medical condition. And, but as Theo already mentioned, um, it's really just a lifelong process. Um, so thinking about aging as not a condition that you get a certain age, but just a process um, that begins from age zero. Um, one thing that we try to do to um, approach aging from a more holistic angle um, is to make sure that we're touching on different aspects of people's lives as we do our research, but also to foster intergenerational interactions and engagement. And Julie can speak more to this because this is something that she's deeply involved in, um, but to really be engaged in different things with um, people of different generations to learn about people's experiences, the culture, um, what they're experiencing, what they're thinking about, and not just um, look at it from 
um, a, an angle that you're assuming what the other might be uh, thinking about, assuming what the other generation might be going through. And Julie can speak more about that. Definitely. I would say to combat ageism really calls on calls on the numbers. We know that by 2030, that all 70 plus million baby boomers in the United States will be over the age of 65. We know that between now and 2040, which is only in about 20 years from now, that the U.S. population of people age 85 and older is supposed to double. If we just look at the numbers, if we think about challenging ageism, we need to acknowledge that just by the numbers themselves, older adults, quote unquote, are not a monolith. This is not a monolithic group. We're looking at such an immense number of people at this point when we talk about, quote unquote, older adults, that especially as the United States continues to diversify in all ways, including but not only related to age, we are looking at an, an enormous range of experiences that people have had leading up to their older years and within their older years. And so to break down stereotypes absolutely requires intergenerational engagement and a program that we have at the Age Lab called Omega fosters just that partnerships between younger people and older people. We also hear time and time again from the 85 plus lifestyle leaders, a research panel that we have at the age lab of people 85 and older, that again, one's aging experience is completely contingent on their experiences leading up to it, their network now uh, and, and moving forward, uh, and, and a range of, of so many issues that we continue to learn about. And so I would, you know, when I when I think about what it means to look forward to to a heightened aging experience. I think about something that that Joe Coughlin, our founder and director of the Age Lab, talks about in his book, The Longevity Economy. And that's the idea of transcendent design. That if we really want to think about heightening the expectations for what aging can mean, we need to think about things not just like universal design, and that is making more things more products, more places, more services, more policies universally designed, but actually designed in a way that people, regardless of, of their abilities or their, their functions, that they want these things. And so I think about a student that we've worked with in the past who has created a company called Grand Design. Her name is Julia Lemley. I think about products that she makes, canes in particular. You don't look at a cane in general and say, ooh, I want that. But the way she makes canes, they are bodacious. They are sexy. They are beautiful. They make a statement. Is this the resurgence of canes in the United States? I guess we'll see. But these are the kinds of products, just as an example, that we, that we want to be able to look forward to. We want things to excite us. I, I, I like that, and I can't agree more. And, and I think to Chaiwa's point, too, when we're thinking about aging, oftentimes, even if we do a Google search, right, on old, often you associate that, that with physical decline. Um, it's, it's cognitive decline, but it doesn't have to be, right? Aging is not a disease. That's what we keep telling people. It is not a disease that needs to be cured. It is part of 
part of normal life, life course is part of experiencing life. So instead of looking at how much we've lost, we can look at it as how much still we have to look forward to, especially the fact that we've gained an extra 30 years of living since the early 1900s, especially since we have changed the way that we live, we've changed the way that we work, we've changed the way that we interact with each other. So why can't we change the way we perceive getting older? That's not a dirty word, it's not a bad word. We all have parents, we all have grandparents, and one day we're all gonna get older. And and I love um, one, of, one of our friends, Heidi, Colbertson, um, she has a company called Ask Marvie that um, uses Amazon Alexa skills to engage older adults. And she said something that stuck with me through all these years. She said the experience of, of people getting um, above the age of 50, Julie, to your point, they're not homogeneous, just like people that are under the age of 50, they're not homogeneous. You can't say, oh, you know, I cannot treat my eight-year-old daughter the same way I would treat like a 30-year-old colleague because they're different. So same thing, you cannot treat what a 50, 60-year-old can do versus what an 80, 90-year-old can do because age is just a number. It, it's, it's irrelevant. It's experience. It's what we do. Um, as human beings, we are unique. And I hope going to 2021, that's how we can take that forward and change the perception um, and to create a better society for all. So with that being said, thank you so much, Shaiwu and Julie, for joining us today's fascinating conversation. And thank you all for listening in to another episode of One Vision. We'll talk to you next year.